Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the director of the Global Summitry Project. You can find all of the activities of the Global Summitry Project at globalsummitryproject.com. There you will find our e-journal, Global Summitry. You will also find all our podcast series, including the Shaking the Global Order podcast series, the Summit Dialogue series, and the Now series. And you will also find our YouTube series that focuses on a number of our research projects, the China West Dialogue and the Strengthening the G20. It's my pleasure today to be inviting Ryan Hawes into the virtual studio to examine closely the U.S.-China relationship and, of course, the rising tensions between the two that we have seen. Ryan today is a senior fellow and the Michael H. Armacost Chair in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. He holds uh, a joint appointment at the John L. Thornton China Center and the Center for East Asia Policy Studies. Ryan served as the director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia at the National Security Council NSC staff. In that role, he advised President Obama and senior White House officials on all aspects of the U.S. policy towards China, Taiwan, and Mongolia. So, it's just a real pleasure to invite my colleague Ryan Hawes into the virtual studio to examine all things U.S.-China. So, uh, welcome, Ryan, uh, to the virtual studio. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Alan. It's an honor for me to be with you. Ah, uh, it's our honor, actually. Um, so, uh, I wanted to start by referencing back to, to Alaska. And as you well know, uh, Ryan, Alaska was the first meeting of the senior foreign policy officials from both the, the U.S. and China. That was back in April. Uh, clearly, the public declarations, at least, were, to, were, to say, were quarrelsome and negative uh, on both sides. Uh, what would you take from, you know, kind of the tenor or can we ignore that because there were all these other private sessions that went on for hours? Well, Alan, I, you know, as I think about the meeting between the senior foreign policy leaders in the United States and China and Alaska a few months back, I sort of, I start out by taking a half step back and thinking about what's going on in the broader relationship. And I think that there are a couple of things that are taking place. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is that both sides have a national narrative that the downturn in relations is the other side's fault. Mm -hmm. uh, neither side has confidence that the other is willing to make meaningful steps to improve the relationship. Uh, both feel justified in their frustration and anger towards the other, and both feel the need to gird for what they uh, expect is going to be long-term competition with the other. And so with that as context, it isn't entirely surprising that, uh, that the meeting progressed the way that it did in Alaska, even though... The, the rhetoric was was certainly elevated uh, relative to previous periods. As I understand it, the, the American message basically boiled down to three big points, which were, first, don't underestimate the resilience of the United States. Uh, we've been down and come back before. Second, we really do genuinely care about values issues. This is a, an issue that is central to President Biden's view of the world. 
Mm-hmm. And third, the United States is going to prioritize its alliances, uh, that, that, that they are a, a fundamental aspect of how America approaches the world. And I, I understand that the Chinese message uh, had you know, an element of acknowledging or accepting an improvement in the relationship as long as the United States butts out of China's domestic affairs and reverses all of Trump's decisions. So there wasn't really uh, an on-ramp for either side to, to find meaningful improvement in the relationship. But even in spite of that, and even in spite of the, you know, the finger pointing that took place at the start of the meeting in front of the cameras, both yeah. sides spent over eight hours in a windowless room right, right. Uh, navigating each major issue in the world. Uh, and at the same time, you know, we, we've seen that there are ongoing discussions between both countries on issues like climate, Iran, Afghanistan, and other issues. And that's where we are. Uh, there's both a hardening competitive edge to the relationship that's increasingly visible, and also a recognition on both sides of the need for dispassionate dealing with each other, whether we like each other or not. And I think that's the new normal. Uh, there's going to be both competition and an acknowledgement of our interdependence that coexist uncomfortably alongside each other going forward. Mm. Well, so, uh, you know, it, it's become clear uh, even before uh, the Biden administration enters office. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm going to reference for a second some of our colleagues. I mean, these are former Democratic officials. And now, in fact, they're they're Biden officials, uh, namely Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan, and they wrote back uh, in, I guess it was 2019, about the era of engagement being dead, right? And replaced in their writing, at least, uh, in that uh, in that piece by the notion of competition without catastrophe, as they described it, or um, strategic competition, but probably more broadly. Uh, you know, what you, what you describe in the Alaska meeting seems to be evident and, and, you know, kind of reflect some of that. But the question I have is, where's the cooperation? You know, I don't, you, you heard nothing of that sort in Alaska, notwithstanding there were lots of other hours of meetings with these guys. And in subsequent meetings uh, to the extent we've had them um you know you don't you don't hear really much in the way of of uh, collaboration or or cooperation yeah i i think that's a fair observation alan i mean i would just observe that that secretary blinken when he talks about the relationship he talks about it having three components a cooperative mm-hmm. element a competitive element and an adversarial element uh, when President Biden talks about the relationship, he acknowledges that it is possible and indeed necessary for competitors to cooperate with each other on occasion when both sides' interests overlap. Mm-hmm. So I think there is an effort to keep that window uh, for cooperation open. Uh, it has not yet in the first six months of this administration manifested in very many tangible examples. But uh, the muscle memory is there. Uh, senior officials in the Biden administration have experience cooperating with their Chinese counterparts. They mm-hmm. cooperated with their Chinese counterparts during the global financial crisis at the start of the Obama administration uh, on the Iran nuclear deal uh, in t- 2014 or thereabouts, on Ebola issues, mm-hmm. as well as on climate issues in the run-up to the, the Paris Climate Accord. So there, there is a ample uh, evidence to draw from and, and a playbook on the shelf uh, that, that can be taken off and dusted at any time. Um, and in the coming months, we'll see. 
uh, I expect that President Biden and President Xi will meet with each other uh, on the margins of the G20 meeting in late October Mm -hmm. um, in in Italy. And uh, I think that that will be sort of the next proof point to examine uh, whether or not uh, these two competing powers remain capable of finding common cause. Yeah, but just as a reflection on that, of course, uh, you know, uh, in particular, I understand Wendy Sherman, a very important official, Biden official vis-a-vis uh, trade, uh, was setting up, uh, you know, to come back. And there was discussion about her meeting with officials, but they got into a dust up over, you know, which official uh, should she meet? Uh, and yeah, never. while there is that muscle that you reflect on, in this administration, I haven't, you know, even even the issue of climate change, which has repeatedly been referenced by um, uh, Biden officials as a potential area of collaboration, but there's no joint kind of uh, meeting task force. Certainly, anything similar to the uh, SNED, for instance, uh, which was longstanding dialogue uh, mm-hmm. with China. None of that. Um, has been uh, identified yet. Uh, is it just because we're too early in the administration, or is there something else going on here? Well, I think it. You know, to to answer that question, you need to step back and look at the inheritance that the Biden administration had uh, when they entered office on January twentieth. Uh, COVID cases were rampaging across the country. The economy was uh, was in a valley. Uh, relationships with alliances were strained. Uh, mm-hmm. domestic uh, disorder inside the United States was was very troubling. And so from, from that starting point, it's not uh, entirely unreasonable that the Biden administration would focus its early efforts on uh, calming the situation at home, getting COVID under control. And now we are in a position where, you know, President Biden has indicated that uh, he wants the United States to be an arsenal for vaccines around the world. We are a leading producer of, of vaccines around the world. So in the span of six months, uh, we have made, uh, you know, significant movement. Uh, it just hasn't occurred in the U.S.-China context yet. Uh, but just because the, the first six months were focused on uh, repairing at home and restoring alliances abroad, uh, I don't think forecloses mm-hmm. uh, the prospect for their to be development in the U.S.-China relationship going forward. But okay. you're right to observe that we haven't seen it yet, and time will tell. Okay. Uh, just one last thought on that. I mean, uh, you know, when Biden does talk about, you know, the shape of American foreign policy as he sees it and, and his administration carrying it out, of course, he emphasizes the, the element of autocracy versus democracy, Right. Um, and, but the question is, what are the, you know, what's the practical consequence of that framing, uh, it, when it comes to, uh, us, China relations? Yeah, Alan, I'm trying to keep an open mind on this, but, um, <laughs> my, my imagination hasn't led me to <clears throat> positive spots yet. I, I see more, more costs than benefits from drawing ideological dividing lines mm-hmm. for sorting the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, uh, I, I worry that it risks weakening rather than strengthening our solidarity with other leading democracies around the world. I'm not aware of any uh, countries, partners of ours in Europe or Asia that are spoiling for a fight with China uh, over ideological issues. Right. I also worry that it limits our ability to collaborate uh, with China in issues where it serves our interests to do so. 
And, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess where I come out is that ultimately the most powerful tool the United States has is not uh, an argument. It's the power of our own example. And the attraction the United States has enjoyed for a long time for its uh, ongoing experiment at self-improvement, you know, it's pretty impressive. And uh, I hope that we get back to believing that the best way for democracies to spread their values is to get their own house in order and and have the power of their own example uh, uh, serve as a source of attraction. That's uh, how, over the long run, uh, I think that that uh, we sharpen the distinction between the offering that we have and and uh, the example that illiberal powers have uh, around the world. Mm-hmm. So, um, <clears throat> you know, clearly, Washington, uh, current Washington, um, has expressed, and it's perfectly reasonable, uh, concern about Beijing's, you know, kind of excessive domestic uh, political control, and also uh, aggressive foreign policy uh, stances. We can go into them a bit, hopefully, uh, in a, a few minutes. Meanwhile, Chinese leaders believe that the United States still has futile designs on blocking their country's inevitable rise, to great power status, certainly in meetings, and I'm sure you've been in many meetings, I certainly have been in meetings in Beijing and otherwise where immediately the the word containment kind of rises to the surface. So um, there's been a longstanding view out of uh, Chinese officials and academicians and others um, uh, about um, the motivation of the United States. Uh, The current you know, kind of deterioration of the bilateral relationship appears to be uh, potentially a culmination of years of disputes and and, uh, disappointment and growing distrust, uh, you know, between the two countries. And some of that, of course, uh, and you talked about it in the uh, Global China book, uh, arose before Xi Jinping. So where's Where's the trajectory at this point between uh, for U.S.-China relations? Well, I I would certainly agree that uh, challenges <clears throat> in the U.S.-China relationship predate Xi Jinping. Uh, right. I think that the challenges are larger than the personalities of any individuals involved in it. Okay. Uh, I would also agree that from China's perspective, the United States is acting like an anxious declining power that is seeking to cling to its grasp on primacy. Um. Where I may depart slightly from your description of the relationship is uh, in the the emotion of it. Okay. Uh, I, I agree that there are some people uh, in both Washington and Beijing that are disillusioned and disappointed by the trajectory of relations. But there are plenty of others who recognize that the United States are two major powers that are not going anywhere, that have competing interests, and that are going to have to find ways to coexist uh, as long as we both remain locked on the same planet. And um, that's going to require dispassionate dealing with each other, uh, managing areas of contestation, coordinating on common challenges. Uh, so, so maybe it's the optimist in me, Alan, but I, mm-hmm. I don't see the relationship as resigned to doom and gloom <laughs> as the characterization uh, that you just laid out would suggest. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, then... Um... You know, how how would you characterize, how would you describe what appears to be a a far more aggressive um, uh, kind of policy, including, you know, military, uh, around questions of the, certainly the South China Sea that had been recent, or East China Sea, and the growing and threatening behavior 
towards Taiwan um, we've seen in the last uh, number of months. What is what is that telling us about where where the Chinese leadership is? Uh, I I uh, agree that it's a alarming warning signal and one we should take seriously. Okay. Um, you know, look from China's perspective, the South China Sea and Taiwan belong to them, and it's only a matter right. of time until the world acknowledges and accepts that reality. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, in these issues, I think that the United States and China have basically zero sum differences with okay. each other. There's not really going to be much room for compromise uh, on these issues. In the case of the South China Sea, I think we find ourselves in a mutually unsatisfactory stalemate. Uh, the United States can't push China off of its reclaimed <clears throat> islands without risking conflict. Mm-hmm. China can't push U.S. Uh, naval or air assets out of the South China Sea without risking conflict. Neither side likes the status quo, uh, but both uh, are, are resigned to it for the time being. Um, and in the case of Taiwan, you know, I, I expect that uh, Beijing is going to continue to invest considerable resources in building military capabilities that are designed to try to delay, deter, or deny uh, America's ability to intervene in a military crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that Beijing's strategy is to try to accentuate divisions within Taiwan at the same time as it tries to reduce America's ability to intervene. Uh, they talk often about, you know, when the plum is ripe, it will fall from the stem. They're trying to create conditions that, uh, that cause uh, Taiwan to, to accept that uh, their only path to peace and prosperity runs through Beijing. And so that's the challenge set that we're up against. Um, I think that, that Beijing would prefer to win without fighting if given the option. Um, mm-hmm. And to get there, they're going to need to convince people of Taiwan that they're alone, they're isolated, they're vulnerable, and they need to welcome Beijing's warm embrace. And it's our job to, to counter that. Uh, to to undercut that narrative and and mm-hmm. uh, the strategic direction that Beijing is trying to take things. I mean, does that then you know lead to a change in in the one China policy for for this administration and presumably successor administrations? I mean, is it does does the United States need to do something uh, different uh, uh, in order to? Um, create the deterrence? I mean, some obviously, um, uh, such as Richard Haas, for instance, have talked about the need to finally give a security guarantee. I mean, is that what's required? Or are there alternatives to simply ramping up uh, the tensions between the two? Well, there are, it's, as you pointed out, it's a subject of ongoing debate in the, in the expert community. There are many well-meaning people who have deep support for Taiwan who come out on, on different ends of this question. Um, I, I agree with the principle that as the situation changes, America's approach uh, should change with it, evolve with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not yet persuaded that, uh, that, that America's or Taiwan's interest would be advanced right now in the current circumstances by a change in America's declaratory policy. I, I worry that it could precipitate the very type of outcome that our strategy is designed to prevent. What we're doing now uh, is is fairly muscular by historical standards. Uh, you know, the, there is a constant American presence around Taiwan, uh, which serves as a regular reminder uh, to the Chinese leadership of the strength of our resolve to see differences resolved peacefully. I don't get the impression that many leaders in Beijing doubt uh, the sincerity of America's commitment to, to stand, uh, stand firm on, on issues relating to Taiwan. But the United States is also, at the same time, embedding Taiwan as a global issue. 
uh, not just a annex of U.S.-China competition. Mm-hmm. We saw this, for example, when President Biden hosted Prime Minister Suga from Japan, when he hosted President Moon from South Korea, when the G7 leaders met and for the first time in the history of the organization referenced Taiwan as an issue of interest to them. And so there are actions taking place uh, that, that should provide reassurance uh, to the people of Taiwan and clarity uh, to the leadership in Beijing about the strength of our interest. And how much do you think additionally, because it's being pointed out, uh, you know, that the, the military posture for Taiwan is not as robust as it possibly could be. Do you think that that has to be part of the, the equation as well? Yeah, uh, I do. Uh, I think that it's incumbent upon both Taiwan and the United States to maintain a credible deterrent capability. And as Chinese military capabilities advance, uh, it's imperative that that U.S. and Taiwan defenses do as well. Okay, okay. So now let me let me turn to another issue and of interest in in part to you as well. Uh, and you, this is something you wrote in Global China, which for the audience is a very interesting um, volume, uh, numerous uh, chapters by a variety of folk, many of whom are from the from Brookings, but uh, elsewhere as well, um, all either specialists or former officials, uh, with respect to the issues, uh, China, U.S.-China, uh, the, the, the Far East, etc. So uh, there in, in your chapter, uh, Ryan, you wrote, the speed and scale of China's uh, technological ascent has triggered American concerns about the implication for its own security and prosperity in a globalized 21st century economy. So, you know, this, I suspect, partly relates then again to your view of the need for the United States to expend more energy in building back better kinds of uh, questions. But I wanted to see it from more from the China side. Recently, we saw uh, the party state efforts to assert control over a uh, uh, Chinese uh, technolo- uh, technology company. And in this case, it was Didi Chuxing. Um, and there, uh, a, what appeared to be a very sudden and arbitrary regulatory action was taken by the, so- the, the so-called Cyberspace Administration of China, which I take it is a department of the party as well as a um, element of the, of, uh, the state. And so, you know, uh, it, that clearly uh, following this IPO really seemed to impair um, the freedom of action of this technology company uh, uh, in China. Is this something we can and technology companies in China are going to have to accept from now on? And what are the, what are the consequences of that for the technology sector in China? Well, I'm, I'm glad you raised it. Uh, you know, Didi is like the Chinese equivalent of Uber. Right, right. Um, and uh, I think there are a few issues at play. Um, the first, the I, I don't think that uh, the Chinese Communist Party likes the perception of Chinese technology companies being dependent upon the American financial sector uh, mm-hmm. for raising capital. Yeah, uh, I don't think they they like the symbolism of Chinese companies leaving China uh, and and listing on other markets. Uh, I don't think they like uh, the perception of, of Chinese technology companies having autonomy or, or separation from the Chinese Communist Party. Mm-hmm. And I think that they would uh, very much like to see Chinese technology companies list uh, in Shanghai, 
Shenzhen or Hong Kong, Hong Kong markets yeah. rather rather than uh, rather than in New York, mm-hmm. and so uh, that's I, I think that's the backdrop to this most recent action. Uh, I don't think it's a one-off event. I think it's probably going to be uh, part of a pattern. I'm not sure if other Chinese technology companies are going to test the proposition and and be publicly rebuked in the way that uh, that Didi did, or if Didi perhaps was uh, you know the killing the chicken to scare the monkey. Uh, Okay, Um, but you know now, uh, if this is a potentially a pattern that is, you know, and and the reflection on um, raising capital outside of China and more broadly, you know, control over the technology sector. We saw, you know, other actions with respect to Ant, which is another technology uh, conglomerate, etc. I mean, does does it lead one to stand back and reassess the capacity of the of the technology sector in China, given the what appears to be this formative level of control that the Chinese party and the state are trying to exert on uh, at least select technology companies? I see it uh, as part of a pattern that has been evident for some time of of loosening and then tightening, loosening and then mm-hmm. tightening. We're in a tightening phase right now where the Chinese Communist Party is asserting greater control uh, over uh, the Chinese technology sector. It doesn't want uh, the tech sector to stand above or apart uh, from the, the direction that the Chinese Communist Party is trying to set. Mm-hmm. The Chinese Communist Party and its leader, Xi Jinping, are spending a lot of time talking about the need for self-reliance, for reducing vulnerabilities to dependence on outside sources for, for chips and other critical technologies. Uh, and it's an open question to me if uh, if this track that they're on is going to bear fruit. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. they're essentially cutting themselves off uh, from from talent and knowledge production that is taking place on a global basis around the world. Right. Yep. Uh, and uh, I, it's it's not a uh, it's not a bet I would make uh, if I were in leadership. I'm obviously not. But uh, there's also not a uh, not a lot of precedence for for this type of uh, action bearing fruit over the long term. So I, I raise this as an important question mark uh, mm-hmm. about uh, the direction that, that China finds itself heading at the moment. Okay, so uh, let's let's continue to look. I mean, you know, looking for instance at the uh, semiconductor sector, uh, for for instance. Um, uh, the reality is that the Chinese have been, and the government have been prepared to supply billions and billions of dollars to the development of the semiconductor sector in China. And yet, it would appear that it, you know, the sector is not nearly at the cutting edge uh, as represented by others, most particularly, of course, on Taiwan, the uh, TSMC, right? And so, right. simply pouring money. Uh, in, uh, for certain technologies is no guarantee then, apparently, of success. No, no, certainly not. And uh, there are you know, examples that sort of cut in both directions of China's industrial policy. <clears throat> um, I, 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 I very much agree with your proposition. It, uh, pouring money at this problem is not uh, a solution to this problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, China has certain dependencies. There are certain choke point technologies that if China loses access to them, uh, they will struggle uh, to produce cutting edge chips and without cutting edge chips that will have a, a bit of a ceiling on some of their innovation. And so um, this, is, uh, this is definitely a space that, 
that we will need to continue to watch. And uh, I think that it's important for us to keep this in mind, uh, you know, in part to try to puncture the myth of China as the 10 foot, 10 foot tall Goliath right. uh, that, uh, that can see into the future and, and, uh, and, and, and move mountains. Okay. <clears throat> so let me kind of draw it together again as we uh, kind of look at a kind of final statement on, on this relationship. Um, uh, the intro chapter to Global China, which you were one of the uh, several um, uh, editors there, um, uh, you and others wrote, leaders in both countries need not and should not accept the reductive logic of unavoidable enmity or conflict, okay? To escape such an outcome, policymakers in both countries will need to reprioritize efforts to find an equilibrium to the relationship that allows both to coexist within the state of heightened competition. So, you know, and I, and I take it, this is a kind of uh, similar view if I can, uh, you can correct me, of course, um, to kind of Kevin Rudd from the Asia Society's position on, you know, s establishing the guardrails um, of the relationship. But, um, uh, you know, I, you know, focusing on the reprioritize is, um, are we there? Because, you know, again, just like the collaboration portion of our discussion, the reprioritizing, I'm not sure, is there either. So where does that leave US, the state of U.S.-China relations today, Ryan? Well, Alan, I don't think that we're at a new equilibrium in the relationship. And in mm -hmm. fact, I think it, it may take years, it may take a decade, it may take longer uh, for us to reach that point. But I think maybe, I, maybe it's hope, maybe it's analysis, uh, <laughs> that, that that's the direction that we're headed. Um, is I, I think back on the recent year to several years, the last administration, the Trump administration, you know, there were several yeah. big arguments that animated their thinking. Uh, one of them was this view that there <clears throat> are, are irreconcilable mechanical stresses uh, resulting from shifts in relative power. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, Graham Allison made this idea popular with his book about the Thucydides trap. Right, right. Most people in the China expert community I talk with don't find the Peloponnesian Wars of 4000 BC as a particularly <laughs> instructive historical analogy for, for the moment that we're in now. And I yes. think that there are also you know, underlying some questions about whether uh, two nuclear armed powers are going to be driven solely by the right. logic of power maximization and be right. indifferent to risk and pursuit of relative gain. So I see that argument as uh, diminishing in influence. The, another argument that was popular in the previous administration was this idea that there are irreconcilable differences between Chinese ambitions and vital U.S. interests. Mm -hmm. And th there's sort of an, a deep ideological struggle. Um, I think that that view has more currency at the left and the right poles of the U.S. political spectrum than it does in the center. Uh, the view I hear more frequently expressed by, by folks that I speak with that uh, you know are around uh, the administration and, and in touch with the president is that the United States and China are going to be two dominant actors in the international system for the foreseeable future. That's just the way it is, whether we like it or not. And we're mm -hmm. both going to have to figure out ways to deal with each other, to coexist amidst this intensifying competition. And so that's, I think, the backdrop to references to competitive coexistence or competition without catastrophe or competitive right. interdependence, whatever you know, framing you want to use. There are different ways of saying the same thing, which is that the United States and China, over time, are going to have to find ways to develop an equilibrium for managing this relationship. So uh, are there signals we should look for 
which re which would reflect, um, in your view, Ryan, uh, this kind of reprioritization of the uh, and the reestablishment or establishment of an equilibrium between two uh, more competitive uh, actors. I mean, what can we look to and and to signal that in fact we're you know maybe a little bit more on track uh, in terms of the relationship? Well, I think that. Uh if if we see begin to see some mirroring of language for describing the relationship by senior officials in both capitals, that would be a suggestion that there is, uh, you know, a bit of commonality of view or approach about the overall structure of the relationship. Uh, if we continue to see uh, a recognition by senior officials or leaders on both sides of the need to both cooperate and compete. Mm -hmm. And uh, an acknowledgement of the fact that both sides are going to coexist. One is not going to prevail over the other. One is not going to displace the other. We are both going to be two major powers in the international system. I think that is a uh, an indicator. Over time, uh, you know, the proof is going to be in the pudding. And I think right. that we are, we, the United States and China find themselves in a long-term systems competition. Uh, there isn't going to be any period of, uh, you know, tranquility or bone homey. We, we have fundamentally different visions for the future of our countries and of the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, the United States believes that its governance system is best able to unlock the talents of its people, to accelerate innovation and to deliver solutions to address the problems that the world confronts. The Chinese believe that their system uh, is capable of outperforming ours. And, uh, you know, as time goes by, may the best system prevail. Sure. And that I un do understand that relies on actions. I guess, you know, uh, Xi Jinping's kind of refrain and repetition about the East is rising and the West is declining would, you know, a certain toning of that uh, uh, between uh, by the leadership in China do you believe might have a, a more salutary uh, effect? Because it does strike me as a really aggressive statement. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's the equivalent of uh, fingernails on a chalkboard to many American <laughs> officials. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> just to put a finer point on, on, on your observation. Look, uh, I think that as a, as a practical matter, we need to take that statement seriously. Uh, I've been told by Chinese counterparts that uh, to challenge that proposition that the East is is rising and the West is declining is to be uh, politically incorrect inside China right now. Yes, uh, that, that there is a mm -hmm. a certain expectation of adherence to that viewpoint. Right, uh, and uh, I think that uh, the Chinese may be believing some of their own hype uh, in this regard. Mm -hmm. uh, the the Chinese had a golden opportunity. Uh, in the previous years to really solidify their position in the international system and to uh, garner a lot more goodwill than they did uh, as the Trump administration was alienating uh, allies and adversaries uh, alike. Mm -hmm. But they didn't. Uh, if, if you look at the situation now, uh, you know, public opinion about China is uh, plummeting in many parts of the world, particularly in the developed world. Um, it's a, a little more uneven in the developing world. But mm -hmm. nevertheless, uh, the fact that, uh, that, that negative attitudes toward China are rising simultaneously in Canada, Australia, Japan, uh, the United States, Europe, uh, suggests to me that uh, what's going on is not a U.S.-China problem. It's a, it's a problem with, uh, with China's external conduct. And um, the, the United States, I think, needs to be prepared to capitalize on the openings that China is providing by its aggressive diplomacy. 
And, and the ways that the United States can most effectively do so is to draw and sharpen the contrast between the offering that they're providing and the offering that the Chinese are providing, which mm-hmm. is which is pretty shrill and uh, aggressive. So the, the more that the United States can present itself as a partner, uh, willing and interested in working with other countries to solve common challenges and to help them develop uh, and, and improve the lives of their citizens, I think that the more favorable light the United States will find itself in and, and the and you know, the, the more better friends that the United States has, the stronger of a position it will be in uh, over time to compete effectively with China. Okay. Uh, final question then. Um, is there a, a signal we can look to? Obviously, one would have to have a meeting of, of uh, Xi Jinping and, and uh, President Biden uh, at the G20. Um, but assuming that there is, that's on the cards, is there anything we, we could look for to give us a, a sense of, you know, a more a reprioritizing um, or a greater focus on equilibrium between the relationship of the United States and China coming out of the uh, a meeting at the Rome, at the Rome summit? Yeah, it's, it's exactly the right question. I'm not sure what the answer is. Okay. Uh, I, I think that uh, expectations probably should be kept modest, given the limited interaction that has taken place at senior levels, at least up to this point, uh, in preparation for that meeting. You know, if you think back to previous administrations, there was a tiered set of engagements that would set up uh, meetings between the top leaders. And, uh, and we haven't seen that uh, take place uh, in, in this instance, at least not yet. And so uh, the two leaders are not going to, you know, raise issues and negotiate on the spot about uh, issues that have not been addressed by their their advisors and staff beforehand. Right. Uh, I I, th- I think that we can uh, look to see if the two leaders um, find ways to establish their expectations for the conduct of the relationship. That they both are comfortable with uh, with healthy competition that can spur both of them to up their games. Uh, and both recognize the need to to, uh, to try to steer clear of uh, of direct unvarnished confrontation or conflict with each other, which would be devastating to both sides and indeed the world. Uh, it, I think we can also look to see if there are uh, signs of interest uh, that are reciprocated on both sides for exploring the potential for working together, uh, whether it's on building you know a global pandemic preparedness network. Uh, or dealing with climate issues, which will take center stage the week after the G20 at the COP in Glasgow. Right. Um, so there, there are uh, opportunities. And, and then finally, to, to see how the, the two leaders address issues where we clearly have differences of views. Uh, there will be plenty of candor, I expect, in the conversation between the two leaders. Both, both leaders, I've been around both of them, they're both comfortable uh, with directness. Uh, and I, I don't expect that that's... Uh, that will will uh, not occur when they see each other in Italy. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, can 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 the two leaders dispassionately deal with their differences? Uh, will be another area that uh, will be worth watching. Well, I really appreciate uh, your taking this time to discuss with us these issues. Really enjoyed it. Hopefully. We'll uh, watch closely as the the two leaders gather in Rome at the end of October, and uh, we'll see if there's some uh, new kind of framing that we can begin to point to. So thank you, Ryan, for taking the time. Thank you, Alan. It's, it's been wonderful to have a chance to compare notes with you. <laughs>